I had the privilege last week of uh, listening online to the service and watching it. And uh, what a tremendous message that Pastor Brenton brought to our body. I know you were deeply blessed by it. I heard from several of you. Amen. And, you know, for a, for a smaller church, we are so thankful and blessed by some solid Bible teachers. And I look out today and I see a good crowd of folks on a summer uh, Sunday when people are traveling and coming and going. And I'm just amazed by the fact that you're here. And I'm thankful. And uh, I think it speaks to uh, the fact that we're committed to teaching the Bible. And that's, why we, that's what we do. We come to church to worship God. And the pinnacle of our worship of God is to study His Word. And so take your Bible out. We're in Matthew chapter 27. And uh, we're actually coming to the close. Uh, we will not finish today. It's interesting because throughout Matthew's Gospel, we see things moving quickly. And then all of a sudden, it comes to a slow motion when you come to chapter 21, and that's the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem on a Monday, and he enters, and now we're still in. That was chapter 21. We're in chapter 27. He's still in that week. We've moved from Monday to Friday uh, of that week, and of course, he's going to be put on the cross, and he's going to hang and die for the sins of the world, and uh, so we're going to take our time going through chapter 27 Today we're just going to bite off a small portion. We'll come back next week and maybe even one more after that. Uh, and then just to tell you where we're going uh, forward in our Bible study, uh, we'll have a couple weeks on the uh, book of Jude. Uh, we started the series back uh, over a year ago in the spring uh, looking at Jude. We went through, I think, two or three sermons, and we never had a chance to finish Jude. So uh, we'll finish that up. And then we'll move in August, and then we'll move uh, maybe a week into uh, sacrifice and persecution and martyrdom and what uh, those before us have suffered for the cause of Christ and how today in this society that we're living in, we as Christians should be always prepared uh, for martyrdom. We should be prepared for persecution. And so we'll have a message on that that'll line up with Jude's teaching. And then we're going to come into uh, to September and we'll start a new series, and the new series will be on the book of Acts. Uh, we've gone through the gospel of Matthew, which is the life of Christ, and of course, the last few chapters, we've seen how Jesus is preparing his disciples for when he leaves, and, and uh, he's preparing them to lead the church that will be born on the day of Pentecost as the Holy Spirit comes. And, and so we want to now move from the setup to the church, now we're going to move into the church age and study what God says about his church. I had someone share with me, uh, even yesterday, uh, uh, an email, and they said, I, I feel like this is somebody I've never, I, I, we were only in dialogue together on someone's post on Facebook a, a couple weeks ago. I don't know this individual. What they said, I just, I don't even know why I feel led to share this with you, but I've always felt that uh, God is, that Jesus is, is, is repositioning the church. He's doing something right now in the church. And uh, I respond, I'm going to respond to him and, and, and share that I, I don't agree with that. I don't think there's a repositioning of the church. I don't think there's a restatement. I think what Christ did was enough. 
and that he gave everything the church needs by the way of the Holy Spirit and the message and the clarity of that message is still there today. Nothing's changing for the church. God is not a God that changes, right? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. What needs to change are those of us who are impacted by the truth of God's word. And we need to change in how we view the world and how we go and share the gospel. So, so today we're going to look at as Jesus comes ever closer to the cross. After nearly a year, we're coming to the close, and uh, we still see, even today, you're going to see Christ as king. And that's what this whole series out of Matthew's gospel has been about. Jesus Christ is the king, and you and I are servants to the king. And, and so, especially as we move closer to the cross, we're going to see the splendor and the majesty of our Lord against an evil backdrop of the unjust religious leaders using their means illegally and immorally to convict the king of glory of crimes that he never committed. If there's anything you take away from this teaching this morning from God's word is that it is really important you understand that Jesus lived a sinless life. Jesus never committed a single sin. You have to have a sinless Christ to have salvation. There is no salvation if Christ sinned. And when you see the evidence that's going to come out in this little passage that we're going to look at today, it absolutely affirms that Jesus lived a perfect life. And so these guys, these immoral religious leaders, they did their dirty work to try and murder Christ. They did it under the cover of darkness, okay, uh, because it was so disgustingly wicked. The people, if they saw exactly what was going on, would have, would have not turned in their favor. Yet under the cover of secrecy and trumped, with these trumped-up charges, they still could not pin a sin on Jesus. They had to actually come up with false accusations in order to put him before Pilate and the Romans for the execution that they had in mind. Even today, there are many false accusations and lies that are brought forward about our Lord. If you just watch the History Channel, you watch some of these shows on TV with these, these theologians who explain away the miracles of the Old Testament. The ones who get on there and talk about the fact that, yes, there was a book that nobody wants to talk about, but that Jesus had an affair with Mary Magdalene. And they run up all these charges against Christ. Why? Because they are ungodly people who do not want a holy God that they have to answer to. So you do whatever you can to remove the sinless Christ. If he's a sinner like you and I, then you can set your own standard of righteousness. And we're living in a day right now where relative truth has completely erased absolute truth of the word of God. Now, not for you and I, but in the world's eyes. In the eyes of our students going to college, they are been being taught, even the children coming up in grade school, they're being taught in different ways that they can be whatever they want, they can believe whatever they want. Truth is only what they make it to be. And you and I know that, that truth is absolute by the word. This, the Bible says heaven and earth, and that means everything in it and every thought that's ever been given on it will pass away. But the word of the Lord 
will stand forever. Either you believe that or you don't. And you need a sinless Christ in order to substantiate and solidify in your heart that the word is absolutely true. And I believe it with all my heart that in the original text, it is without error. There's no erroneous claims in the Bible. And so we see today many who are coming against the Lord. Earth and hell have thrown everything they can at him. Yet Jesus still stands in majestic beauty without rebuke. It is a tremendous testimony to his sinless life. And the satanic underworld works overtime to convince the world to believe that Jesus was anything or anyone but God. But the evidence of his sinless life stands as a testimony to his deity. And right here in what we're about to read, we see the evidence, the true evidence that Christ was sinless. And, and you know, we're heading to the cross. We're going to be looking at the cross coming up in the next week to two weeks. And we need to know that Jesus was completely innocent of any charges, that he was purely divine and holy. we got to know that because that's where our salvation comes from. That's where our righteousness comes from, from a righteous God. So he will be executed for the truth. It's interesting because uh, they, they, they accuse him of these false charges, uh, these religious leaders, and, and they finally decide what the false charge will be that they'll kill him on. And what is it? What did they tell Pilate? Well, blasphemy. He claims to be the son of God. So the one charge that they put against him to put him on the cross is not really blasphemy at all. He is the son of God. They just couldn't find anything. That is the savior that you and I worship a God who this world and even hell itself and even Satan and his demonic forces cannot taint. And I'm thankful for that, aren't you? Amen? Let's look at verse 1. And when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. This would be Friday morning, the week of Passover at sunrise. Already phase 1 and phase 2 of the Jewish trial have occurred between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. Since that time, Jesus has been bound as a prisoner in the house of Caiaphas. He's been waiting there until dawn. Why is he waiting until dawn? Because the Jewish, the, this corrupt Jewish council has to wait until daylight in order to have a final pronouncement of a confirmation that they think he's guilty and that he needs a blasphemy and he needs to be put to death. They've got to wait. Why? Why do they have to wait? Because Jewish law requires that it be daytime whenever they bring a charge of capital punishment. They never wanted there to be a night experience in that way where somebody could, in the, in the darkness of night, bring about charges and quickly bring someone to capital punishment. It had to be in the daylight. So they're going to do this trumped-up meeting right at dawn before people have even risen because they don't want the crowds to know what they're doing. And they're going to bring Jesus into this trial right at daylight, and that's what they're doing. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Now, the problem that the Jews had was that they, they had no right to capital punishment because they were under Roman occupation. 
They, they did have a court system. The, the Supreme Court of Israel was the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin were to meet at the temple daily. And whenever they would, even before the Roman occupation, if they were going to convict someone of a capital punishment, they had to have a three-day period in which to do that. In the first day, that would be the day of decision, that they've said, okay, the verdict is capital punishment. The second day was a day where people who were now aware that they were going to put this person to death, if there was any evidence that had not been considered in the trial, you could come forward and present the evidence. So they gave time for that. And then the third day, uh, they would have capital punishment unless somebody came forward. If someone came forward between the first and second day, then they would go ahead and call for a retrial with the new evidence that had been brought. That was the law. That's legislated for the Jews. These guys, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, the council, they didn't follow it. They did the whole thing in the middle of the night. I just want you to see the backdrop. You've got the sinless Christ, the majestic splendor of a holy God who comes incarnate in flesh and blood, and he's ready to lay down his life, having never sinned. He's the only one who's able. He's the innocent, and only the innocent can pardon the guilty, and he's ready to go. And the backdrop of this absolute corrupt religious system, political system in Jerusalem and they, but, but, but the thing is, they can't, they can't murder him. They can't execute him because the Romans won't allow it. Only the Romans can do that. And so in chapter uh, 27, verse 2, when it says they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor, now the trial is finished among the Jews. That's the religious trial, the false religious trial. Now it's going to be handed over to the Romans, which is the secular trial. That's about to begin. Okay? Uh, if, you, if, you, if you look at John's, just write this down. Those of you Bible students, write this down. John chapter 18, verse 31. That's John's record of the Jews bringing Jesus to Pilate. And let me just share with you what goes on there. They bring Jesus to Pilate. And he says back to the Jewish leaders, you handle this yourself. I don't want any part of this. And the Jews said this, listen, they said, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. While you are here having occupation over us, we're not allowed to do anything. He didn't know they wanted to put him to death. And now all of a sudden that changes the whole thing. Let me say this about Pontius Pilate. He had been assigned to rule that region of the Jews. His headquarters was down on the seashore at Caesarea. He was in Jerusalem that week because it is the Passover. Jews came from all over the known world to worship God during Passover, to offer sacrifice, as Pastor Bill shared with you, to offer sacrifice to God. And Pontius Pilate would really up the number of troops that would be in Jerusalem at that time. Why? Because throughout the Roman occupation, uh, in Jerusalem in particular, there were uprisings. There were insurrectionists who would try and overthrow the Roman uh, occupation. 
And so the Romans would beef up the security, and Pilate himself would leave the coast, the beautiful Mediterranean, and he would come back over into Jerusalem to be there. So that's why he's there. He's staying at, the Fort, at Fort Antonio, which is very near the temple ground, and, not, and no doubt very near to the house of Caiaphas, where Jesus has been waiting after the false verdict was given by the Jews in the middle of the night. Now they're bringing him to Pilate. And we'll look more closely at this next week, but we're not going to spend time with, about him right now. The, the Jewish trial then is over. Now we're into the Roman trial. And now what I don't want us to miss as we get into the details of this trial that Jesus just endured under the cloak of darkness is that after all the Jews did everything that they possibly could do to try and find wrong with Christ, there was no wrong. Just keep that in your mind. He still stands in all his glory, all his beauty, and all of his holiness and righteousness against a backdrop of deceitful liars and bribers and murderers who are attempting to kill the innocent Son of God so that they can preserve their own sin. Where we're about to go is a side road that Matthew gives us. This is the week of Passover. Matthew is trying to point us to the cross, yet he takes us into the final events in the life of Judas for a few moments. And that's as far as we're going to go today. And the reason Matthew does that under the leadership or inspiration of the Holy Spirit is for you and I to identify with the importance of an innocent Christ and the only way to get relief from guilt and shame and sin is through Christ. We're going to see that here. You see, the Jewish leader law required that when a verdict of death was put upon a person, you couldn't actually execute them until the third day, as I said. And so now they have brought Christ to, to Pilate, and what's very interesting here is what it says in verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. How did Judas see that? Jesus has been at Caiaphas's home, bound, and now they bring him out in public to take him to Pilate. Judas, no doubt, was standing, waiting to see what was happening. And he sees Jesus walk out. Much like Peter, who denied Jesus three times, standing by a campfire while this false trial is going on, and he denies Jesus three times. And then the Scripture records that as Jesus came out, he looked over. He looked right at Peter. And that was the reminder to Peter. Peter, you say that you'll never leave me. You say that you'll defend me. You'll stand with me. But before the rooster crows, by the time the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And he looks over at Peter, and Peter feels the weight of shame and guilt because he has sinned, the sin of betrayal. And now Judas, who has handed Christ over for 30 pieces of silver, is standing outside, and they march Jesus out bound up 
And it's very possible, it's plausible that Jesus actually looks over at Judas. And Judas sees Jesus being marched off. He saw that Jesus was condemned. And it says, and when he saw Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Just as when Peter saw Jesus and Jesus confronted Peter on the beach after his resurrection, Peter knew he was guilty and Christ took him through a process of forgiveness, of reconciliation. But I can't say to you today that this text tells us that Judas now is ready to repent of his sin. All I can tell you is he recognizes the shame and the guilt of what he's done. It's on him. He feels it. This whole scene is more than Judas can bear. He has this reaction, the same as Peter, seeing Jesus condemned, rips Judas to his core, and it says when he saw he was condemned, he changed his mind, meaning he regretted, he felt sadness, he felt remorse, he felt pain on the inside of his being. This whole scene is very interesting. It's more than his guilty conscience can bear. It's more than his money-hungry mind can deal with. He's feeling the pain of guilt, and it's agonizing. It's excruciating. It's probably paralyzing. He's numb in the moment as he sees Christ bound up. Why? Because he knows. Judas knows that Jesus has never sinned. He said it. He's innocent. The man is innocent. He simply felt the weight of the wrongness of what he had done. Built into every human soul, I believe, no matter how sinful, how depraved, how vile, how unconscionable, there is a still built into the soul a sense of wrongness, an innate understanding of the essential evil of a certain deed that we do. You know it. And we look at Judas and we think, who could be more evil than this guy? He spent three years with Jesus and ended up betraying him. He denied the reality of all the miracles that Jesus performed. He rejected the deity that Jesus spoke of, of himself. He rejected God's love. He rejected God's mercy, grace, kindness, and compassion. He rejected the power of God, the sovereignty of God, the plan of God. He is a picture of fallen man, totally unbelieving, totally secular, no faith in Christ as the Son of God. No faith in Jesus as his Savior. This is Judas. And yet this man who is profoundly evil cannot escape the divinely designed internal mechanism of guilt that rings the bell in his heart, warning him of his impending destiny in hell. Judas, wouldn't it be wonderful if Judas, in that moment of seeing Jesus bound, knowing he's innocent, knowing that Judas is guilty of handing him over on false charges. If Judas had simply reached, looked back at Jesus like the thief on the cross, I'm guilty. Please remember me when you enter your kingdom. But he didn't. Judas thought that I'm unworthy, I'm unre irredeemable. He had his sin upon him, and he was going to find his own way to deal with the shame and the guilt. And what is that? Judas wanted to die. 
Judas wanted the Jewish leaders to kill him. In Deuteronomy, it says that not only does the Sanhedrin have to take three days before they can punish someone with capital punishment, but it also says if a false witness comes before the judge or the Sanhedrin for someone who's, who's facing capital punishment, and it's a false charge and that comes out, you, the false witness, have to suffer the death of the one being charged. Judas knew that. He's a Jew. The Jewish council knew that. That G Judas is coming and saying, I'm a false witness to this man. You have to put me to death. Judas doesn't think he's worthy to be saved or redeemed. He just knows I'm guilty. I need relief from the guilt. I'm better off to die. I deserve death. I deserve hell. And the religious leaders, it says he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. And he said, I've, I've, I've betrayed innocent blood. That's on me. And how do they respond? Look at verse 4, the latter part. What is that to us? See to it yourself. In other words, you know the law, we know the law. We're not going to carry out the law on you. You go ahead and kill yourself. We're not going to kill you. Why? Because these corrupt leaders were not interested in following the law that God had given to protect the innocent from the guilty. They're only, innocent, they're only interested in accusing the innocent as if he's guilty. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, Judas departed and he went and hanged himself. This message to me is very important because I think there are people here today, I think the world is filled with a lot of people who know they're guilty. Everybody knows it, but people act as if they're not. They put on a front in public, but many people, they, they carry that. And maybe that's you, and you're thinking, I'm not worthy. Listen, the answer is for you to turn to Jesus Christ. He was innocent of any sin. He is the perfect payment for sinners. When he went to the cross, God, Jesus became the, the penal substitute. He became the penalized for those who were guilty so that we could be innocent of guilt by receiving his righteousness. But you got to come to him just knowing that you regret doing wrong, knowing that you know you feel sorrow for what you did, that's not enough. You'll stand before God, and if you only go to yourself or go to man for help, that's why people go to psychologists a lot of times. I need you to help me with the guilt and the shame that I feel for past sins. And so they try to walk them back through their history of sin and try to help them that way. There is no forgiveness apart from the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. Maybe that's you. Here you are today, and you're carrying the weight, the guilt, the shame of sin. Sins that you committed years ago. Some that you committed this week. 
and you're thinking, I just can't go to Jesus because he, he certainly is, is, is just embarrassed by me. He probably looks at me and goes, oh boy, what a mess. That is not the way the Father sees you. When the prodigal son came home to his daddy, that daddy got up and ran out to greet that boy, which tells you that, that he had been waiting for the son, his son who was filled with sin. He was waiting for that rebellious son to come home. And he ran out and he put a coat on him and he put a ring on his finger and he put shoes, sandals on his feet and he rejoiced that his son was turning from sin. The boy didn't even think that the father would ever take him back in as a son. He appealed to his dad. He said, look, I'm guilty. I've done terrible things. If you'll just let me live on the campus of the farm and let me live with the servants and eat the servants' food, if you'll just let me be a servant, I don't deserve to be your son and the father would have no say in that. He would not try to, to, to fulfill the boy's wishes. Why? Because the father was so overwhelmed that his lost, sinful son had come home, had repented, and was coming back to the father. And that father reached out and loved him. And listen, that father had a lot on the line. Do you know what was going on? See, back in that day in Palestine, honor in the home was everything. Your name in the community at the city gate meant everything to you. And for that boy to take the inheritance early and run off and be rebellious and live a rebellious life, at the city gate, you know there was talk about that family. That father... His name had been tarnished. But you don't see that father stiffening up when that boy comes and saying, look what you've done to my name. I, I got to tell you, it breaks my heart when I see, please hear me, parents, please hear me, especially those of you with small children. But even those of you who have adult children, it's never too late. It breaks my heart to see parents who discipline their children out of, the, out of what shame it brings to them. You've hurt my reputation. You've made me look bad to other people. And we discipline children with that attitude. That is not the attitude of the father. The father did not bow up against the son. The father didn't care what his reputation was in the community. And for that father to go running out to the boy and, and just take care of him and love him the way he did and not have any rep repercussions for his sinfulness... That went against everything that that community would have done. But that father didn't care because our heavenly father doesn't care. He has nothing on the line to lose. He's God. And he sent his own son. What an embarrassment that God the father would have to send Jesus to live a perfect life and die for a bunch of sinners. But God did it. Why? Because he loves us. And this morning, if you're here, don't be a Judas don't be a Judas. Some people have said, well, there's one gospel that says that Judas repented. No, he did not. There's two Greek words, and they're very similar, one being metanoia, and that's speaking of repentance that leads to salvation. The other means regret, remorse, sorrow, but no salvation. 
because you don't repent. Judas didn't repent. He simply took on thinking, I can cover my own sins. And he killed himself. There's no salvation in that. If you're here today and you're carrying guilt and shame from your sin, God the Father has made a way to release you from the shame and the guilt. To offer you salvation in Jesus Christ. You take on the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus takes on your filthy, stinking, putrid unrighteousness. That's the trade-off. That's the extraordinary exchange that God offers you today. Are you saved? You're not saved because you admit that you did something wrong. You're not saved because you feel guilty, because you're ashamed of what you did. You're not saved because you regret doing it. Judas felt all of that, and he never came to salvation. You're saved because with that guilt and shame and regret, you bring it to the Lord, and you confess to him, I am a sinner. And the split second that you confess that, that you lay that before him, immediately he offers you forgiveness. I love that passage in 1 John. I, I love what it says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. If we what? If we plead, if we beg, if we try to do certain works, like Martin Luther who whipped his back, who went to the top of the stone steps and rolled down the steps, bruising and scraping his body, trying to somehow earn penance from God? No. By simply handing over saying, I'm a sinner, I confess. I don't have to corner Jesus, I don't have to try to talk him into it. I just need to confess it. And immediately, he offers forgiveness. Some of us think, well, I've got to somehow ask Jesus to forgive me. No, you have to confess your sin. Once you do that, forgiveness is offered. Amen? Isn't that, a, what, a, what an awesome God. What an awesome God that we serve. That's what the world needs to hear, folks. This is the message. Jesus is innocent of any sin. Therefore, he is able, and only he, to forgive us sinners. <laughs> and he wants to forgive you today. I want to invite the elders, and I want to invite those who are present today. I know it's summer, and some are not here, uh, but elders and also the prayer uh, servants, the workers, the partners, if they would come and just stand on both sides. And I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up, and they're going to sing a song, and we can sing with them, but we're going to do two things. Now, that's going to be hard for us men because we're not able to multitask. I understand that. I are one, okay? So, uh, but, but we actually... We actually want to have a moment of reflection, even while they're singing. And you can, if you want to sing, that's perfectly fine. 
but in that moment of reflection, looking inside, letting the Holy Spirit reveal, letting Him work in this message, this truth of the Word in you. And, and in that moment, maybe it's time for some of you to step out into the aisle and walk forward and come and not because these people have salvation power and not because you have to do something to be saved, but simply some of us need probably to open up and just say, I need to confess. Would you pray with me? And you pray. They'll agree with you, but you pray and ask Jesus. Just confess your sin to him. And let Jesus forgive you completely of your sin. And walk out of this room today knowing that you are saved. Knowing you're saved. And by the way, you don't ever have to do it again. This is not a come today and then this week I sin, so next week I need to come back up to the front and say that I've con and confess my sin again. No, if once you've confessed, you're saved. You're saved. God forgives you. He has forgiven you. You're a transformed person. You'll still fall short. But the grace of God goes beyond your sin. It covers your sin. Amen? All right. Well, let's pray. Father, this morning, in this moment, we just recognize that apart from the work of Christ, there is no there is no sacrifice for sin. There is no salvation. Only a heavenly Father who is truly compassionate and gracious and loving could lay out a plan to literally take on the sin of his creation. And you did it through your Son. And this morning, some of us are coming into the reality of that. And now rather than be like a Judas and try to just feel regret and sorrow and shame. We want salvation. We want to be reconciled. We want to be redeemed fully for all eternity. And so we come and we confess and we are cleansed. That's your promise to us. Oh, thank you, Lord, for that promise. free to sing along maybe you want to sit quietly maybe you want to rise and just come to the front and be prayed for whatever let's let the holy spirit have a moment to speak to each of us